There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode includes discussions of torture and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In January 1565, Russian war hero Prince Alexander Gorbatyshusky stood before the executioner's block with his 17-year-old son. Only a few days before, he had agreed to give the Tsar the legal authority to execute whomever he saw fit. He never dreamed that his son would be the first to die. As they pushed his son to his knees, Alexander called out to the Tsar, Please, kill me first. Grant me the privilege of showing my boy how to die with honor. The Tsar's severe face turned toward him with a frown. He said, There is no honor in death for traitors. Nonetheless, I grant your request, for I am a merciful Tsar. Alexander nodded, then knelt down before the block. He gave his son one last goodbye before the executioner swung his axe. Alexander's son picked up his father's severed head and kissed his forehead. He turned to the crowd and shouted, I thank thee, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has deemed us worthy to be executed in our innocence, being like unto thee, the innocent lamb who was also slain. The crowd was shaken by his words. They all knew these two were not traitors, but it made little difference. The boy's head soon joined his father's on the ground. Two more victims killed by Ivan the Terrible's hand. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. As we enter into our last batch of dictators, we'll be discussing some of the most feared men from the medieval period, Ivan the Terrible, Genghis Khan, and Vlad the Impaler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we dove into the early life of Ivan the Terrible, from his celebrated birth to his lauded coronation as the first czar of Russia. We also saw how the young ruler slowly became a true despot and how he acquired absolute power. This week, we'll explore how Ivan's power allowed his insanity to run rampant over his people. We'll also see how his reign ended in tragedy and briefly cover the fallout of his passing. In 1547, Ivan IV, Grand Prince of Muscovy, declared himself the first czar of all of Russia at the young age of 16. 
It was a title that most closely translates to emperor, and it was meant to mark him as a monarch with absolute power. While Ivan was all-powerful in name, in reality his kingdom was run by the boyars, a class of aristocrats who managed most of the day-to-day governing of Russia. He dreamed of acquiring the absolute power he felt he was owed. So in December of 1564, 34-year-old Ivan left the throne. For years, Russia had been in the midst of a war that Ivan unnecessarily started. Ivan knew that if he were to leave in the middle of a war, the boyars would crawl back to him. The ploy worked. The boyars begged Ivan to return to the throne and lead them to victory. Ivan insisted that he would only return if the boyars agreed to two conditions. First, Ivan wanted the right to kill with impunity. Second, Ivan wished to establish a second kingdom within his own kingdom that ran according to his rule and his rule alone. In other words, Ivan wanted absolute power. Desperate for the return of their king, the boyars consented to Ivan's requests in January of 1565. With these concessions, Ivan IV's reign had ended and Ivan the Terrible's had just begun. With this new power, Ivan split his kingdom into two separate governmental systems. The first was called the Zemschina, a word that translates to the Dominion. The Zemschina was simply a continuation of the government that already existed, where the boyars held legal sway. Far more dreadful was Ivan's kingdom within a kingdom, which he called the Opriknina. According to the book Ivan the Terrible by Robert Payne and Nikita Romanov, Opriknina describes the portion of a man's estate set apart for his widow. Ivan had always had a flair for the dramatic, and this choice of name was no different. Any land within the Opriknina would be ruled by Ivan's will and Ivan's will alone. When the boyars asked Ivan to define the borders of his new kingdom, he drew them a map. The next day, he gave them a new map with wildly different borders. It seemed the confines were subject to Ivan's whims. Any part of Russia could become a part of the Opryknina at any time. Within these ever-shifting borders, Ivan would enforce his rules via his personal army of followers, which he called the Opryknikki. Ivan wanted their appearance to inspire fear in all who saw them. He required them to wear long black robes, ride exclusively black horses, carry a broom to sweep away all treachery, and tie decapitated dog heads to their horses to represent the savagery they would unleash upon their enemies. That savagery was almost immediately set loose upon the people of Russia. In January 1565, the day after the boyars granted Ivan leave to kill as he saw fit, Ivan commanded his Opryknikki to find and execute any boyar who had displeased him. Some he executed on the streets of Moscow, others were impaled on their horses, and others were decapitated on a frozen river. The cruelty Ivan had displayed as a youth was finally coming out in full form. Following the executions, Ivan stripped many boyars of their lands and titles. He sent his Opryknikki to drag them from their estates. 
anyone who resisted was subject to plundering, rape, and torture. The plundered riches were added to Ivan's private treasury, while he rewarded his police force with the lands and the titles of those he had deposed. With his Oprik Nikki let loose upon his countrymen, Ivan himself retreated to his hunting lodge at Alexandrova Sloboda, approximately 75 miles to the northeast of Moscow. There, he ordered the hasty construction of a new capital, one in which his madness and bloodlust would know no bounds. As his new fortress was being built, Ivan focused on fostering the loyalty of his Oprichniki. In his perpetual paranoia, Ivan required them to prove their dedication every single day. Each Oprichniki was required to arrive at church at four in the morning, every morning. Once there, Ivan would lead them in a religious service that lasted for six full hours. If anyone was late to the service or failed to follow the strict rituals, they were ferociously beaten. Yet these stringent requirements were a price well worth paying. In exchange for their devotion, Ivan gave the Oprichniki access to all manner of sadistic pleasures. More often than not, this sadism was led by Ivan himself. To satiate his paranoia that the people were trying to overthrow him, Ivan had hundreds of people rounded up and brought to Alexandrova Sloboda to be locked up in his private torture dungeons. Every day following the completion of his morning chapel, Ivan would walk to his prison to take part in the only thing that seemed to give him joy, pain and murder. A foreign mercenary who witnessed Ivan's evil acts wrote, the tyrant habitually watches with his own eyes those who are being tortured and put to death. Thus, it happens frequently that blood spurts onto his face. He is not in the least disturbed by the blood, but on the contrary, he is exhilarated by it. Not only did Ivan enjoy these tortures, he expected everyone else to enjoy them too. In fact, that same foreign mercenary continues, but whenever the tyrant observes someone standing there in silence, he immediately suspects that he is sympathetic to the prisoner and asks why he is sad when he should be joyful, and then orders him to be cut to pieces. And every day, people are killed at his orders. Ivan's paranoia consumed his every waking thought. Even his own Oprichniki weren't safe. The slightest show of sympathy for another human being was all the evidence Ivan needed to subject someone to the death penalty. As his tortures continued, it became ever more clear to those around him that Ivan's sole delight was the invention of new methods of execution. Ivan ordered stranglings, hangings, drownings, burnings, and disembowelings. He had each Oprichniki carry long barbed staffs so they could impale people against the ground. They would also wield knives as long as their forearms to slice people into pieces. Sometimes Ivan would ride with the Oprichniki as they raided the estates of nobles. On one raid, Ivan ordered his guards to lock up every man they found in the attic of the estate and then packed the bottom of the house with barrels of gunpowder. On the Tsar's orders, they lit the fuse and watched. As the house exploded, Ivan laughed with glee at the sight of bodies flying through the air. 
As Ivan blew up the men, he subjected the women to much worse. First, he separated the beautiful women to have his way with at a later date. The rest, he split into two groups. Ivan stripped the women of their clothing, then commanded them to flee into the woods. As they ran for their lives, he sent his men to hunt them down and kill them for sport. The other group of women, Ivan also stripped naked. He released a group of chickens, then told the women to catch the chickens as fast as they could. As the women sprinted after the birds, Ivan ordered his men to unleash a barrage of arrows upon them. If they managed to catch a chicken before being shot down, they could go free. But Ivan had so many men and so many arrows that none of them survived the day. Not even death could save his victims from indignities. Since Ivan believed every man he executed was a traitor, he ordered that none of them should be allowed a proper Christian burial. He piled up the corpses within his own capital as a warning to those who crossed him. As they rotted, the stench became unbearable, and the city could be smelled for miles around. Yet through all these tortures and all these evils, most of Russia knew little about Ivan's sadistic pleasures. They still held him in awe and respect, and many assumed those he killed had truly been guilty of treason, even if that guilt could never be proven. But the people's view of Ivan would change. Soon, all of Russia would be living in an unprecedented nightmare. When we return, we'll learn about Ivan's most terrible act, the destruction of Novgorod. Now back to our story. In 1565, Ivan the Terrible acquired absolute power. At the helm of his Oprichniki, Ivan ran roughshod over his people, and he became a threat to the stability of his own country. To make matters worse, Ivan's reign of terror began in the midst of the Livonian War, a war that Ivan himself had started in 1560. Ivan felt that it was his destiny to rule over all the lands of the former Kievan Rus, and he planned to start his conquest by taking over the country of Livonia. As he invaded, he drew the ire of two neighboring countries, Lithuania and Poland. Both Lithuania and Poland hated Russia, and they knew that if Russia successfully conquered Livonia, they would likely attempt to invade them next. Determined to stop this from happening, the two countries joined the war, fighting alongside the Livonians against the Russians. While Ivan's private army, the Oprichniki, rounded up and tortured innocent people at home, the Boyers used the Russian military to continue the battle against Livonia, Lithuania, and Poland. Ivan's paranoia and instability would reach its zenith when he came to believe that one of the largest cities in Russia was conspiring to defect and join Lithuania. That city was Novgorod, more than 350 miles to the northwest of Moscow. Due to its great distance from the capital, Novgorod often operated as if it were its own kingdom. And by 1569, the independence of its people made the ever-paranoid Ivan grow uncomfortable with its existence. To make matters worse, Novgorod was the closest city to the front lines of the Livonian War. Due to its proximity, Novgorod paid the most in taxes and in people to fuel the invasion. 
Rumblings reached Ivan that the people of the city wished for peace. To Ivan, even the thought of reaching a peace treaty with Lithuania and Poland was treasonous, as it meant his people were questioning his capabilities as a ruler. So coming once more to his persistent paranoia, Ivan convinced himself that Novgorod would ask the king of Lithuania to become their new ruler. In December of 1569, Ivan formed an army of 15,000 soldiers strong and set out to attack his own people. The key to Ivan's campaign was secrecy. He knew that if his people got word of his planned attack on Novgorod, they would flee, defend themselves, or ask an opposing army to defend them. Rather than take the main roads, Ivan took his entire army trotting through the forests at a snail's pace, avoiding as many cities as they could. If the Aprikniki came across any civilians on their trek across Russia, they were ordered to execute the person on sight. Most commonly, the poor souls were stripped naked and rolled in the snow until they froze to death. When Ivan came across the small town of Klin, he ordered the entire population put to the sword. A few days later, Ivan and his Opryknikki arrived in the city of Tver. To discreetly find out if his attack plans had spread, he left his army in the woods and went to the nearby monastery to receive blessings and conduct espionage. He discovered that the monks and the people of the city had been completely surprised by his arrival. They didn't even know the Tsar had left his capital. Upon hearing this, Ivan was pleased. He prayed before the monastery's icons, then asked the monks to bless him. When he left the monastery, the monks still had no clue what he was planning. To celebrate his pleasure, Ivan summoned his army, raided the city for all its valuables, and executed the entire population, killing at least 9,000 people over the course of a single week. When he was finished, he pressed on to Novgorod. Ivan's advance troops arrived at his destination on January 2nd, 1570. He had ordered his army to blockade the city, ensuring that nobody entered and nobody left. The people looked on in horror as their czar, their ruler appointed by God, surrounded them with the marauding forces of the Oprichniki. They had no idea what the czar planned to do. They only knew that he was angry. Once the city was effectively blockaded, Ivan's troops carried out his first order. The Oprichniki were to swarm the monasteries in the surrounding region, acquire all the treasures, icons, and personal belongings, and bring them to him. At the same time, every monk, priest, and nun was to be brought to the center of Novgorod. Altogether, the Oprichniki assembled about 500 monks and priests. Once they had them all in the same place, they began a mass beating, pummeling the holy men with their fists and feet from sunrise to sundown. After this brutal treatment, the city was calm for four days, waiting for Ivan and the rest of his troops to arrive at the city walls. The people of Novgorod were trapped, terrified, and hopeful that their czar only wished to punish the clergymen. How wrong they all were. On Saturday, January 7th, 1570, Ivan ordered that all the monks, priests, nuns, and abbesses 
be beaten to death with spiked clubs in the public square. This mass murder took place on a Saturday. Ivan decided he was going to attend church in the Cathedral of Novgorod the next day. On Sunday morning, as he rode into the city, he was met by Pimen, Archbishop of Novgorod. Pimen attempted to bless the Tsar and appease him, but Ivan would not be stopped. In the middle of Pimen's blessing, Ivan shouted out, Because you worship evil, you have no holy cross in your hands. Instead, you are carrying a weapon, and you are no longer the shepherd, nor the teacher, nor the holder of the archbishopric of St. Sophia. No, you are a wolf, a predator, a destroyer, a traitor, an enemy of our crown. Ivan's words were made all the more ironic when he followed them by demanding the archbishop conduct mass in the cathedral. He ordered the man he had just called a wolf to bring him closer to God. The archbishop followed his orders, and during mass, Ivan was seen praying fervently. However, once the mass was finished, Ivan commanded that the archbishop and all his clergymen be arrested. The cathedral was then stripped of all its beautiful and valuable things, which were added to Ivan's personal collection. During the ransacking, Ivan brought the archbishop out to the public square and berated him, saying, You have no right to be an archbishop. You would be better if you were dressed up like a clown, and I'll find a wife for you. This was particularly insulting. To say he would find a wife for the archbishop was to rob the archbishop of his chastity, a sacred thing at the time. Then Ivan stripped the archbishop of his clothing, brought forward a white mare, and introduced the horse as the archbishop's new wife. In a satirical send-up of a wedding ceremony, Ivan had his oprichniki place the archbishop on his new wife and tied his legs to the horse. Then Ivan gave the archbishop a lyre and ordered him to play it all the way to Moscow, nearly naked in the middle of winter. Sadly, the archbishop's humiliation was far more merciful than everything that came after. For the next four weeks, Ivan arrested men, women, and children from every social class of the city, searching for proof of treachery. He interrogated and tortured them until many confessed to crimes they had never committed. When he was satisfied with their answers, he had them executed in dramatic fashion. Ivan constructed a high-dive-style platform on the bridge across the Volkov River. When prisoners were ready to be executed, he had them tied to the backs of sleighs and hauled them to the bridge, their flesh tearing on the frozen roads. Once on the bridge, the victims' limbs were bound. The women and children were thrown from the high dive into the freezing river. The men were thrown off the bridge itself so Ivan could get a better view of the process. When the victims hit the water, they were met with boats full of oprichniki. As the victims struggled in the river, the ruffians hacked them to pieces with axes, skewered them with pikes, and sent their entrails moving down the river with sharpened boat hooks. Ivan's men no longer needed to waste time and energy hauling heavy bodies. The river did it for them. Ivan had found an efficient and brutal method of execution, and he made full use of it. Each day for four full weeks, 
Ivan killed an average of 1,000 people via the bridge alone. When Ivan grew bored, he would mix up his tortures. From time to time, he rode through the city with a spear in full armor, personally lancing at least 20 merchants for no discernible reason. Ivan tortured one man by dumping freezing water over his naked body and then boiling water, repeating the process until his skin sloughed off his body. By February 13, 1570, Ivan had murdered more than 30,000 people, one-third of the entire population of Novgorod. When Ivan finally grew tired of murder, he ordered all the wealth in the city, anything of value, to be taken by his men. What they couldn't carry was thrown into the river, and any person seen fishing valuables out of the water was to be hanged in the public square. To polish off his assault, Ivan destroyed all of the food stores in the city. Finally, he summoned the last living elders to say his goodbyes. Whether out of pure delusion or pure cruelty, Ivan truly knew how to twist the knife. He forced the elders to bless him after he destroyed the city and murdered their loved ones. Then, Ivan left Novgorod behind, his mission accomplished. Yet the consequences of his actions were only just beginning. The bodies in the river began to rot, and plague swept through the region. Disease prevented farmers from harvesting crops, and Ivan's destruction of the food stores left thousands to starve. By September 1570, 10,000 Novgorodians died from pestilence and famine, and 10,000 more by the following May. Altogether, Ivan's actions led to the deaths of 50,000 Russian citizens, half the population of the once great city of Novgorod. Ivan's assault on Novgorod proved to be the most devastating act of villainy he ever committed. His actions threw his nation into chaos, greatly weakened his military, and impoverished his people. In time, Ivan's enemies would notice how weak he had become. The Khan of Crimea would seize the opportunity to make Ivan suffer. After this, Ivan's evils leave his nation bathed in flames. Now, back to the story. In January 1570, 39-year-old Tsar Ivan the Terrible attacked and devastated the city of Novgorod, killing 50,000 of his own people. His violence ravaged his nation, severely weakened Russia's military, and bankrupted his treasuries. Ivan's actions had left his country vulnerable, and his enemies were quick to notice. The Khan of Crimea, Devlet Gwairi, was chief among them. Khan Gwairi hated Ivan for conquering the Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan. He felt the lands of all the Khans belonged to the descendants of Genghis Khan, and he was determined to make Ivan pay for disrupting that legacy. On April 5, 1571, Khan Gwairi set out from Crimea with an army of 120,000 soldiers. As he strode towards Moscow, he came across Russian nobles who were fleeing Ivan's wrath. They were eager to help the Khan defeat their leader. They told the Khan that he could easily reach Moscow, as the bulk of the Russian army was fighting in the war in Livonia, far to the northwest. 
The only substantial military force remaining in Russia was Ivan's personal brigade, the Oprichniki. If Khan Gwairi moved quickly, he could reach Moscow without facing resistance. When Ivan heard the Khan had entered his country, he rushed towards the Oka River with an army of 6,000 Oprichniki. Ivan knew the river was his greatest defense, as his men had held back the Crimean army there once before when he was only 10 years old. Unfortunately, Ivan didn't know that the Khan had already crossed the river. He nearly rode headfirst into a battle he couldn't win, only to have his scouts spot the Crimean forces a half-day's ride away. Ivan fled at the first sign of danger. He returned to Alexandrova's Sloboda and grabbed all of the treasures he could. Rather than regroup at Moscow to defend his nation's capital, he continued running north to a stronghold at Vologda, nearly 300 miles north of Moscow. Meanwhile, the boyars in charge of the standing Russian military rushed to Moscow as quickly as they could, straight into the face of danger. Their army was 50,000 strong, far smaller than the Khans, but they knew fighting from the defensive position of the city might be enough to save them. At the same time, a few thousand Oprichniki took up the defense of Ivan's quarters in Moscow. These men had slaughtered many of their own countrymen, but they had never fought in open battle before, and many wondered if Moscow was even worth saving. After all, the capital of the Oprichnino was Alexandrova Sloboda, and the Tsar himself had already fled north. Before they could fully contemplate their decisions, Khan Gwairi arrived at Moscow with his massive army. On May 24, 1571, the boyars met the Khan's forces in open battle, holding them back from the gates of Moscow. However, Khan Gwairi had enough men to attack Moscow from all sides. He sent a substantial force to attack the Oprichnina quarters. The Oprichniki, being primarily composed of cowardly rapists and thieves, chose to flee rather than stand their ground. With their entrance secure, the Khan's men stormed the city and set it on fire. The fire started small, but Moscow was built of wood. It didn't take long for the flames to grow. The wind blew strong and the fire spread with an unimaginable ferocity. People fled in all directions, but most were unable to escape the blaze. In a matter of three hours, the entire city of Moscow had burned to the ground. Only a few buildings were left standing, including St. Basil's Cathedral. Ultimately, 80,000 citizens died in the fire. The bodies were piled so high on the river that it diverted the water's course, carving a new path away from the husk of the former Russian capital. Khan Gwairi watched the city burn from a distance, his smile wide. He had humbled the Tsar and achieved exactly what he had desired. The Khan meandered back to Crimea, looting and pillaging entire Russian provinces during his journey. By the time he reached his borders, he had taken over 100,000 Russian people as slaves. Meanwhile, Ivan returned to Alexandrova Sloboda, where he was finally forced to admit that the Oprik Nina had been a bad idea. Ivan disbanded his police force, executing many of them for cowardice. 
and slowly returned power to the hands of the boyars and the church, much as it had been before. Ivan's terrible experiment in absolute power had finally come to an end, seven years after its creation. To cover up his greatest failure, Ivan made it illegal to even mention the existence of the Oprichnina. Little did he know, he still had two major failures left to make. The Khan of Crimea had devastated much of the Russian army, but a significant portion was still stationed in Livonia. It had been 14 years since the war with Livonia began, and it was still raging. Ivan's primary opponents were Lithuania and Poland, both of which supported Livonia. Things had gotten worse for Ivan when both Lithuania and Poland became a single united kingdom under the rule of the Hungarian Stephen Bathory. Bathory was a formidable man, one of the greatest military leaders of his time, and is today regarded as one of the greatest kings in all of Polish history. He despised Ivan's tyrannical ways and was determined to kick the Russians out of Livonia once and for all. In the summer of 1580, Bathory assembled an army of 100,000 and began an invasion of Russia. At 50 years old, Ivan was by now diseased, weak, and beaten. Desperate to avoid a second invasion, he sent envoys to Bathory's military camp to negotiate a peace. Bathory responded by demanding that the Russian army not only leave Livonia, but also turn over several Russian cities to his domain. These demands were too high, even for the beaten Tsar. He sent back his own deliberately unreasonable terms as a stalling tactic. In the meantime, he sent ambassadors to Rome, hoping the Pope himself might intervene. After all, Bathory and the Polish people were Catholic, and if anybody could talk him out of a war, it was the Pope. As Ivan waited for the Pope's response, Bathory began his assault. His first attack was on Skov, the single most formidable city in Russia. If he could capture Skov, the rest of Russia would be easy. Skov had a military of 40,000 led by Prince Ivan Shusky. They were outnumbered by Bathory's 100,000 men, but they had a few other factors on their side. Prince Shusky's military prowess, the formidable defenses of the city, and the general stubbornness of the Russian people. What Bathory hoped would be a simple assault turned into a protracted siege. He attempted at least nine separate assaults on Skov, but the people held strong through September, October, and November. Meanwhile, Ivan fled further into Russia to avoid the fighting and brought the bulk of his army with him. On November 16, 1581, a group of noblemen approached him with a petition of their own. They asked the Tsar, For three years, our enemies have been invading the fatherland, which it is our bounden duty to defend. We are ready to shed our blood, lay down our lives, and sacrifice our property for the sake of the fatherland. Therefore, O Lord and Master, send your eldest son to the war. Upon hearing the petition, Ivan flew into a rage. His age-old paranoia led him to believe this meant the nobles would prefer for his son to take over as Tsar. Ivan rushed to his chambers, ordering his son to follow. When they arrived, 
Ivan began shouting at his son, accusing him of treason. His son countered, accusing his own father of cowardice. But to Ivan, this was only further evidence that his son was trying to usurp him. Ivan raised his hefty metal staff and brought it crashing down on his son's skull. His body dropped to the floor. When Ivan realized what he had done, he fell to the ground and wrapped his arms around his son, blood staining his robes. Tsar Ivan the Terrible had just murdered his eldest, most beloved son. He had just committed the worst sin he could ever imagine. Ivan was racked with grief. For the first time, he was forced to recognize his own evil. His guilt over the murder of his son finally extended to guilt over the wholesale slaughter he had committed against the sons of others. He began to compile commemoration lists intended for prayer. In these lists, he wrote down every single murder he could ever remember committing. Thousands upon thousands of names. No complete list remains to this day, but given his crimes in Novgorod, it's not impossible to imagine that the number of the dead was well over 100,000. He sent these lists to monasteries all throughout Russia. He commanded the monks to pray for the souls of his victims and to pray for the soul of his son, who he had so foolishly murdered. At the same time, he began to return the wealth and estates he had stolen back to the families he had taken it from. The paranoid god-king, Tsar Ivan the Terrible, finally understood how truly awful he had been. Meanwhile, Bathory's siege of Skov raged on. Bathory had assaulted the city 45 times, and each time he had been repelled. On January 4, 1582, Bathory assaulted Skov a 46th and final time, only to be defeated again. Thanks to Prince Shusky's military prowess, Bathory was forced to admit that the Russians would never give up the city. He had lost the fight for Skov, and the lengthy siege had drained his army's will to fight it all. He agreed to discuss terms for peace. The negotiations involved much pomp and circumstance, but on January 15, 1582, King Bathory and Tsar Ivan finally came to an agreement. Ivan would concede all of Livonia over to Bathory. In exchange, Lithuania and Poland would refrain from invading Russia for 10 years. After 25 arduous years, the Livonian War was finally over. Ivan had gained no new territory, and he had sunk his nation into poverty and desolation. His once powerful empire had been dragged into hardship by his own evil, madness, and paranoia. The rest of Ivan's reign was peaceful. As a man broken by grief, guilt, and long-lasting venereal diseases, Ivan spent the next few years dreaming of better places and better days. Thanks in no part to Ivan, some of his most industrious subjects conquered Siberia in 1582, adding vast swaths of land to the empire. This was done purely to advance their own business interests in the region and without the command or the knowledge of the Tsar. By March 1584, it became clear to Ivan and all around him that his many diseases were going to kill him. In his will, 
he wrote that his final remaining son, Fyodor, should succeed him as Tsar, even though he knew full well that Fyodor was simple-minded and unable to rule. By appointing him to the throne, Ivan knew he was condemning his nation to an eventual power vacuum, but he couldn't bring himself to betray his final son just as he had his first. On March 17, 1584, 53-year-old Ivan was setting up a chessboard to pass the time. As he tried to place the king in its position, he fainted and his body flopped onto his bed. In a matter of seconds, he was dead. Ivan's son, Fyodor, was appointed to the throne shortly after. Surprisingly, the nation didn't immediately descend into chaos. However, Fyodor was unable to produce an heir. He died in 1598, 14 years after his father. Fyodor's death ushered in the Time of Troubles, a 15-year period of coups, civil wars, anarchy, and famine. Approximately two million Russians would die during this time, about one-third of the entire population. The Time of Troubles would only end in 1613, when Michael Romanov became the Tsar of the Russian Empire, starting a dynasty that would define Russian politics for 300 years. Through all of this chaos, much of the lands Ivan had conquered remained in Russian hands. Because of this, the Russian people's relationship to their first Tsar is complicated and confusing. The fear he inspired during his reign persisted well past his expiration, but over time, that fear turned back into awe. Robert Payne and Nikita Romanov put it best in their book, Ivan the Terrible. He had played with them like a small boy tearing off the wings of flies, and they bore him no resentment. He had spilled more Russian blood than any other czar, and they were proud they had so much blood to spare. Like the earth-shaking thunderstorms that inspired his name, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible had brought only death and destruction, but his mighty power and ruthless ferocity made his people grateful to witness his terror. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week with our first episode on Genghis Khan. For more information on Ivan the Terrible, amongst the many sources we used, we found Ivan the Terrible by Robert Payne and Nikita Romanoff extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Dictators was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Richard Rosner